0: I want to do something a little bit different in the, for the second half of today's program. On last week's show, as I hope you recall, there, listener, because I hope you heard it, we spent some time talking about the American political system, in particular our, our two-party system as it exists, excerpting heavily from the Uncle John's Political Briefs special edition of the Uncle John's Bathroom Reader series. I, uh, I wondered then, as I was doing that, as I often have, I think, over the years, what my teachers might have to say about the things we talk about on this program. At one point, we were deciding how to name the show. One of the names that came up was Radio High School, because a lot of the issues that we talk about on this show are things we should have talked about back in in high school days, which are still reverberating. We decided that was not a good marketing name for what has become Radio Parallax. But as I say, I've often thought, Well, I just wonder what my high school instructors would think about this program. And so, uh, oddly enough, it is my great pleasure to be able to bring on to Radio Parallax my high school social studies teacher. Welcome to Radio Parallax, Mark Mattingly.
1: Thank you very much, Doug.
0: Let me start by asking, you heard our last week's show talking about the American uh, uh, political system, our party system. What would you think?
1: Oh, that was great. Uh, You covered it really well. Uh, if every American knew that information and had that as a basis of before they went out to vote and get out of high school, it would be great. Um, I, I found as a teacher teaching American government for so many years in U.S. history that uh, uh, it, the concept of understanding our political system and the need to understand it and, and, and how, how politics works and how government works is so difficult. And I'm not sure it's being taught well throughout the world and throughout the land, I mean. Well,
0: on been... behalf of the kids at Washington High, I want to thank you for the fact that you, you did a good job teaching us about the U.S. government, and I think we did have a leg up on a lot of people I've talked to over the years that say things like, well, I never learned that in high school, and I'm like, well, well we did, thankfully.
1: You know, being taught in the 60s in college, I, I started college in the early 60s and graduated in 66 from from college and got my teaching credential in 67, and I was... Really taking courses throughout the Bay Area from Cal to to San Jose State to to San Francisco State, you know, even took a couple of classes at Stanford. I had great professors. I had a lot of things going on in the '60s in the Bay Area, the People's Park movement, the anti-war movement. Did you remember maybe in my class? I used to go to all these events all over the Bay Area, take take slide pictures of mm-hmm. them, come yeah. back and show them on you know, to you guys in a slideshow, play rock and roll music like Revolution by, <laughs> by the Beatles or, or whatever, with Sympathy for the Devil by the Rolling Stones and kind of show what's going on with the, the tear gas and the People's Park or the different events. So it'd it be a little more fun and, and interesting for students, number one. And number two, I, I came out of, a, of an education where my professors were really, you know, questioning a lot of things about our country from the McCarthy era after that, from the Eisenhower after that, and civil rights that was so much in the background until the 60s. So it was a exciting time to be in college. And for you guys, it was an exciting time maybe to be in high school. You know?
0: Well, we were coming right on the heels of the revolution that was the 60s, mm-hmm. year two after Daniel Ellsberg and the Pentagon Papers, you know, and then all of that. And someone listened to the show recently and said they were not familiar with the term the credibility gap. And I was just sort of like, really? Because that was just something we were steeped in, this idea that, like, in, by the mid-60s, the American public was torn by the fact that they were realizing what we were being told about what was going on in Vietnam was inaccurate. It wasn't true. What Lyndon Johnson was telling the American public was, was not true, and therefore a credibility gap emerged as regarding presidential pronouncements. But this was, this was something new to America.
1: Well, I used to teach where I gave topics to have kids talk about in class. And I had a political party's little game that we did or, or convention that we did where we had a number of political issues. And the number one issue in that era was the draft. Mm. And what I realized with the Iraq war after 9-11 was who was marching in the streets of, of San Francisco with me? Other gray-haired people. Mm-hmm. Nobody's kids were being drafted. Right their kids were worried about the SAT scores yep. and getting into an AP class and right. all those things that I was dealing with as a teacher back then, teaching these new people that were moving into the Bay Area. And so that kid in my class that was gonna be 18, whose brother was gonna be 18, whose mm-hmm. boyfriend was gonna be 18, who cared about that topic, and 50% of the, of the kids that went to Vietnam, they were casualties. They mm-hmm. were killed or wounded in some way most of the time. So it was a huge topic. And by the time we got into the 2000s with George Bush, it wasn't a topic anymore. And it was really disturbing to me that we now have this army of, and they go to places like Iraq and Afghanistan and they come back so wounded mentally, yeah. PTSD and all the things and we just sort of don't, don't care after they get back here.
0: Over the years, there's been many times that uh, I've had people who, you know, progressive minded people, smart people who would say things to me like, you know, what we really need to do is bring back the draft. Because, you know, once those politicians realized that they weren't going to send their kids off to get in trouble over there, they, they would change their tune. And I, I just, it sort of, my brain sort of rattles like, well, no, we've been through this before. The politicians weren't sending their kids over there back then, nor would they send them now. Mm. The draft is not a good idea from that from that
1: well, logic. Well, a lot of them had bone spurs, apparently. <laughs> so, Yeah. Well, I, I know I, I disagree with you on this one. I, I think it would make a difference. I think if there was a draft of everybody, it would be, it would be different about how we, Mark, now, never, whether we went to war.
0: there never has been. You always can get somebody well, to sure. say you got bone spurs.
1: But at, at one point in Vietnam, you, you know, when I started, if you were married, if you were a student, student deferment, you, right. you didn't have to go. Right. Then if you were married, it was okay. okay. Then you got drafted for that. Then you had to have a child. And eventually, it was just a lottery of your birthday,
0: mm-hmm.
1: your birthday. Right. And I, I don't know. I I I disagree. I think that might have made a difference in what happened, what happened with with Iraq and Ara- Afghanistan.
0: Well, someone had an article recently talking about the number of people that serve in our military, and I uh, they were talking about how the disproportionate number come from six states. I don't remember what those states were, but I'm sure they were southern states.
1: southern states. states yes. Sure.
0: Yeah. And yet that's that's the bulk of our military with a, people with a long, quote unquote, military tradition. Well, also, gung.
1: but the inner city kids, you know, the Vietnam War was the first time that blacks really were 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 put in the military in large numbers and really got over in Vietnam. And I think they were the, one of the largest groups that were killed over there, as far as e- ethnic groups and all that. And it was, so it was it was a real change I think in this country.
0: It's sad to contemplate that the things that you were that were still reverberating in the country. You'd like to think that things have gotten better, and some in some aspects things have gotten better and a lot better in some in some certain areas. And yet here we are looking at our current president and the things being talked about that are just. Talk about credibility gap, things that are just not true all day long, every day, week after week. It's it just it's, it's a little depressing.
1: Yes. At, at the worst, I always felt like the leadership of this country at least knew how to run the Treasury Department and the <laughs> Education Department. You know, and, and, and in foreign policy, we always had someone that had yeah. some kind of credentials from from some university that they knew what they were doing that way. And we have people talk about country. demoting
0: the Federal Reserve chairman. What was that? He was going to renegotiate the national debt. If
1: he, if he doesn't lower the interest rates, you know federal federal funds rate, he may not keep his job, as our president says. I mean, that's supposed to be absolutely neutral. It's supposed to be over there all by itself with with the money. And and how the government and the Treasury run things and the Fed runs things. It's not supposed to be political. It's supposed to be based on the the economic you know issues that are coming up whether we should raise or lower, you know, increase or decrease. And he's politicalizing everything now.
0: It has been a reset in terms of what's uh, the, the, what's acceptable among things that seem crazy. I mean, it's just the, th- the things that 20 years ago were just unthinkable are now just in in, in the news every day.
1: So what about the tweeting that he's doing and the new mode of information from with cell phones is this just the future of what it's going to be or do you think the next president's going to go back and try to create this world I, I don't know. of kind of a uh, you know a pre-trumpian you know way of dealing as as a more presidential the, kind of you know the horrible stoic thing, he's making
0: here. it work he has a substantial portion of the population that's still behind him his base does not seem to be threatened by anything he does and by reaching out through tweets to them directly it reminds me of the old you know Spiro Agnew and well acting as Nixon's surrogate would attack the press and say that the press is giving us instant analysis of all of this stuff and we need to get the president needs to get his message directly out to the people and and not have somebody else you know saying what he said and interpreting it and 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 with modern technology Boy, they've really found a way to accomplish that, it seems to me.
1: So is this going to be the way it Then you think?
0: I do kind of suspect that unscrupulous individuals, having seen that Trump made this work, are going to realize, yeah, we can, we can, we can do it this way.
1: No, I think, I think you're right. I think you're right. Going back to what you did last week, that's a lot of information for kids to kind of learn and care about over time when you're 16 or 17 years old. Right. What I tried to do is just give them... The main parts, like you talked about all the different political parties in the very beginning and how mm-hmm. it kind of went from Whigs to Democrat-Republicans yeah. to Republicans to mm-hmm. Federalists. And I just started off with Jefferson and Hamilton's philosophy. Mm-hmm. You know, who in America that voted, and, and only 6% could vote before we started mm-hmm. changing the rules mm-hmm. in the very beginning because we had a religious test and a bunch of other things going on there. But, but uh, eventually, the common man, particularly with Jefferson, was a voter, and it happened to be a white common man, by the way, and no women. But who were they? Well, they basically were farmers. That's that's who Ameri- that's who that's who lived in America and voted mm-hmm. in large, large numbers, right? And you had that until the Civil War created a shift, right? And I I go through with the kids. It's called a realignment election where everything is realigned and groups change so that so that 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 farmer that's in Ohio and Indiana that doesn't have slaves he decides he's not going to be a democrat anymore and he ends up becoming part of the republican party that puts a coalition together and that coalition happened to hit at the time after the civil war of the industrial revolution and that group dominated this country as far as elections go as you know republicans until Roosevelt put, to, put together a new coalition. And one of the groups that changed, I think, and, and, and you said it, you had it a little differently, but it was blacks. Blacks voted for, because of, of, of Lincoln. Republican. For the Republican, yeah. until 32. And, and Roosevelt put together, you know, the indigent, the poor, put together minorities, and he, he put together labor, especially, you know, the labor unions that wanted the Wagner Act and wanted the, all that stuff. He put together intellectuals. And he somehow, in this bed, put in the South, because the South still hated the North right. for winning the war. No, for winning yeah. the war. Right. And they stayed in this bed, the blacks and, and the South together, until 64. Goldwater, finally, just that coalition that stayed together, even with Kennedy, broke up finally. And, and the South went from being white Democrats to white Republicans. And that's, that's who they are today, you know. And that's that— that's, shift that's occurred and the common man in 1932 was a laborer Mm -hmm. he didn't have chickens and a a cow to milk and Mm -hmm. food on the table unless he had a job and it changed and of course now what's the common man now i mean that's it's it's, what do we do for a living now is real hard to put your finger on in this country and that's part of the problem with these politicians go to the midwest very few of us are farmers in this country but they have a lot of electoral votes (laughs) <laughs> so, you know, you go to the you go to the coasts of New York and 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 California and Seattle and all and you know, Washington, and you're gonna find, you know, a different voter and a different kind of job. So in the South, you know, you've got still got like Volkswagen that people don't wanna become a union yeah. that worked there. So we're we're a kind of a you know, a different country than we were in this time period you kinda of went through, I think.
0: I can remember being a small boy and watching television and seeing a southern politician with that thick southern accent and you know on Meet the Press or whatever talking about why things had to be the way they had to be, and he was a a segregationist, and this was a mainstream position. This wasn't like now that if you're a segregationist now you're 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 in the lunatic fringe, but back then. Senators, congressmen, mainstream politicians were people who advocated, who still were advocating for segregation. And and we have, you know, from a half century to go now, you have to say that that really is, there's some progress there. Oh, definitely. It's inconceivable.
1: Now. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. And you raise a different kind of a topic here for me, but I'll, I'll throw this out to you. What's the most memorable thing that happened to you growing up that was an impression on you? Big. and and And...
0: There's Besides the Kennedy assassination? No, that's what I'm talking about. A, yeah, the like Kennedy that. assassination. Okay. Was it was just a shocker? So, you remember a... where you were when you of learned course. about it? Oh, yeah, absolutely.
1: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. As a teacher for 40 years, I've watched kids have different events make, sure. make that. So, sure. there was the space shuttle that blew up when every kid from elementary school through high school was in the classroom watching it on TV or in the multi purpose room oh watching God. it on TV. And here it went.
0: Oh, my God. I didn't realize that.
1: That's, that, that, that was a huge thing, right? <sighs> then my daughter is in high school. She's a sophomore. And I'm laying in bed. At 6 in the morning, I hear, we think an airplane ran into uh, to one of the towers or something. We don't know what's going on here in New York. And I get up, and I turn on my TV, and I understand what's happening. And I go into my daughter, who's laying in bed, and I said, honey, something has happened that's going to change your life forever. Mm-hmm. And that was 9-11. Mm-hmm. So if you're that person, that, that's oh. that event that you remember, it, it creates a, a view of the world differently than, than, you know. So like I said, each of us, and some of us have gone through maybe all of those things, you know. I mean, Kennedy, I was in college. Yeah. And I walked out into the quad and saw 500 people on their knees, you know, praying and crying. And I, what happened? Somebody said, you know, Kennedy's been assassinated, you know. So it, it affects you forever. So it it defines us as a nation, these different things we've been through.
0: Yeah, it was funny when uh, I, well, not to digress on this too much, but we were in contact a month or two ago, and I I went to go visit your your daughter, who's an instructor at Irvington High School, um, and talking about things. And and you mentioned the fact that, well, nowadays, if you're a high school student, you are born after 9-11, which is like holy mackerel.
1: Yes, if you're 18 right now. Yeah. You were born in 2001 or two. Yeah.
0: You know, exactly, 17, yeah, yeah. So this was not, not influencing you so much.
1: No, no. You don't even know what it means, yes. So Vietnam, for example, which was such a defining issue for me.
0: Yeah, oh, yeah. You
1: know, uh, I, you know I, I was in college when it was happening. I, some of my best friends went over there. My, both of my cousins went over there, and both of them were shot. You know, they both lived, <clears throat> but, but they were both involved in a way that, you know, you, it's really, it, it really is something that matters to you. You know I, I had friends that didn't come back that were I' in college with, so it's it's that kind of kind of thing that happens, yes.
0: Dan Ellsberg spoke at Stanford two weeks ago, and I went over there and as as you say, it's a gray haired audience. there weren't there weren't there were some Stanford students there, there were some young people there, but but not so many, not as many as there should have been. He was talking a lot about not Pentagon papers in Vietnam, but a lot about nukes because he was involved. He was, he was a, a big-time planner of like, you know, how he would have nuclear war back when he was at the Rand Corporation, and he was horrified then and remains horrified today, like the situation, and he's out there still rabble-rousing about it to uh, saying things that people should know about. Yes. I, I wish there'd been more young people in the audience.
1: Yes. So where are we headed? Like I said, I, my daughter, who teaches government and economics and, and history, she's knowledgeable, but her experience is not my experience. You know, and so she has her own, and she has a lot better view and handle on what's going on now than I do with kids. Sure, you know, and where and what what they like and what they want to be and how and 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 what they're worried about, uh, and where they're headed. So I've kind of given them, you know, given the baton to the next generation, sort of speak, as a teacher. But but I worry about the teaching levels. Throughout this country, of what they know about what you want them to know about the, the knowledge about well, the do, Constitution they... <laughs> and, and about the political process and all that.
0: Well, we've cited on this show numerous examples where they've done polls of young people to ask them. And it's just, it's, it's frightening to, to see that, like, oh, what 30 something percent of the, the respondees who were like high school kids thought in World War II we were allied with the Germans to fight the Russians because the Russians were the communists. And you, I, when I see those stats, I'm just like, oh my God. I mean, something that basic, if they're confused about that, what is in their little heads?
1: Well, you have to have a good teacher. You have to have kids care. You start in September teaching founding fathers in the colonial times in, in US history. And by May, you're, you're in the last 20, 30, 50 years. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: By May, what are kids? It's hot. They're tired. Right. We've had daylight savings. <laughs> They're bored to death with the same le- lecture method. or mm. I mean, and here you are with the stuff that means the most to you, maybe, right. and you think right. it's really important now right. that we've built this foundation. Right. And the other thing is this. They're in high school. So really, when you go to college and you take those courses, you build on that. But so many of us in this country, that's it. And many people that are teachers don't know much themselves about where we've been. You know, they're only 30 years old. They don't know about World War II either. My grandfather was born in 1867. My dad was born in 1903. Okay. And I was born in 1942, Mm -hmm. right? And my kids were born when I was 40, in my 40s. So they have a family tree when they sit down. (laughs) And we talk about this history that I know. But so many people, if you have a kid at 25 and 25 and 25, you don't even Mm -hmm. have this history to go back and kind of give your your family the, the family history that they need to have. So anyway, it worries me.
0: You know, we bagged on tech on this program a lot because of the things going on in Silicon Valley I find most disturbing, but I, I do want to note that if you say you want to learn about the Revolutionary War, the tools that are at your disposal now, and your ability to hyperlink from topic to topic, if you want to learn something, if you're motivated to really pick up some data, the internet is is an, a remarkable tool.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And my daughter does it so well, so well, that I I, I love how she does it, and Like, all the things that happened in the 60s with Johnson, with his domestic agenda, Mm -hmm. you know, the war on poverty, she gave a group of three kids, you know, each of these different things that passed, you know, from the Voting Rights Act to whoever it would be, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, uh, Medicare. And they had to learn about it, they had to do a poster about it, and they had to talk to the kids in their class who took notes about it. So everybody, rather than just reading it in the chapter, they basically learned about you know fifteen different you know things that passed in the '60s under under Johnson that were unbelievably important. They're still with us right, right now. You know, minimum wage, whatever they were talking about, healthcare issues. You know, you know, uh, re- equality issues. You know, all that stuff. And she does such a better job than just getting a, a lecture about it. You know, and she she knows how to use the internet that way. She has the kids look up documents that are like um, you know from the past that are sure. that are. You know, written by Jefferson or written by you Hamilton, can pull it up right and, then and then she look has to compare and yeah. contrast. You, know, you know, the Federalist Papers. She does, yeah. you know, that and and it's it's in a way that it's doable for the kids to do it and learn from it, and they really think. They're getting a lot from her class. That she has a lot of positive feedback. So
0: well, I find that very exciting to realize that, you know, there's this huge upside <laughs> to this that you can this can be incorporated. Because I think if like otherwise this huge battle, people come into the classroom, the kids got their cell phone with them, they're playing video games, but no, if you get them engaged with their cell phone looking up the Federalist papers, you're, you're doing something.
1: Right, right. Well each she has a, a class set of, of laptops. Okay. And the kids all get on the laptop. Okay. And they have a place to go website, and there's an assignment there, there's readings to read, and there's things to write and do, and with AP kids, because she teaches AP, you don't have Mickey Mouse homework. You just have exams and papers to write, just like college. Okay. And if you're in an AP class, which is supposed to be a college-level course, and and you can't handle that, you know, you should be in a regular U.S. history class or a regular government class, which... A lot of these parents are pushing their kids into these programs, these AP programs, which are way, which are too hard. Okay. You know, it's high school. Let your kid get a a B in, in the regular history class for A, mm-hmm. and then go to college and take history again. You know, mm-hmm. you know, and, and maybe go to a regular college, not Stanford, because you're not <laughs> going to get into Stanford anyway. Mission San Jose, where I taught, with <clears throat> with 500 seniors, one of the top high schools of California, always rated in the, in the you know, highly in the nation six kids went hmm. out of 500. Hmm. How many letters of recommendation did they want me to write? A hundred. Hmm. I'd say, no, I'll, I'll write you one for Cal Poly. Uh-huh. I'll write you one for... But no, you're, you're not going to get into Stanford.
0: There's you're- some openings on the crew team, I understand. The sailing well, team I, has some ways. Now I said, <laughs> if you have
1: 10 grand,
0: yeah. we can. I, 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 can, we can, do, talk, I can get yeah. a pretty good letter here for you, you know? <laughs> We've got about six or seven minutes left here. So why don't we just... Let's just throw a couple topics up in the air and, and run with them. A and B. A, impeaching Trump. B, reform the electoral college. Uh,
1: well, Clinton was impeached by the House representatives, brought charges. The Senate tried him in a, and he he won re-election because the Republicans did that. It got sympathy. It created a different view at the time of of Clinton for a lot of people. And I'm worried that if. First of all, the, the Senate's not going to try Trump, it, you know, even though the House can bring charges against him. It, and we're going to end up, I'm hoping, it's not going to cause him to re- reelect it. That's my concern about that. Well, uh, yeah. Okay. And, and there's no guarantee that he's going to be impeached as long as the Senate's Republican.
0: They will not, they will not remove him. Well, people, are, impeachment means you're put on trial. Yes. Uh, Andrew Johnson was impeached, not removed from office. Uh, Bill Clinton was impeached, not removed from office. So they could impeach Clint, Trump, Trump, and almost certainly he, too, would not be removed but, but, from office.
1: But you have to vote in the Senate to have a trial.
0: The House votes to try you in the Senate. No,
1: the House brings charges.
0: Okay, that's okay. They you're bring right, okay, charges. That's true. That's and
1: true. when they brought charges against Nixon, he knew he was doomed and he resigned. Right. Trump he will vote, not vote resign. True. And And neither did Clinton. And because they know that okay, this is if this happens, I got enough votes to to, or it's a it's a stupid thing.
0: But they knew, um, by the way, they knew by the way when they when Clinton was impeached, they did not have the votes to remove him from office, but they did it anyway. I think, in my opinion, uh, because they wanted to drive a wedge between him and Al Gore, which worked beautifully, beautifully.
1: But they also try to get the public to rally around. Anti-Clinton anti, anti- Clinton stuff, and I think it, it backfired on him. He won re-election yes. because of, of yes. what they just, were doing
0: most yes. people thought was stupid. I, I agree with you. And, I, and if, Electoral Al Gore, College, if Al Gore had run on Bill Clinton's record, he'd, be, he'd have been president.
1: Electoral College is in the Constitution. To yes. amend the Constitution, we couldn't add treating women equally under the law. <laughs> for the ERA we couldn't add that to the constitution women should be treated like black people <laughs> we, that's what it was written right okay so and, and we still haven't yeah so to change the constitution to amend it takes a huge amount of effort well, this this is not going to change for a number of reasons the, the states that are small
0: that have that, that, extra have that kind power of power because they of don't want to give it up no of course not
1: so here's here's my suggestion all right it would be like in california you divide you know every state gets two at large electoral votes from the US Senate.
0: Yes, which is and why And then every yes. other
1: then 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 yes. every other elector is based on the yes. congressional district. So right. if it's a if it's a state with 10 electoral I mean 10 votes two are going to be in the Senate and eight are going to be, you know, it's going to be population. 5 and 3 or mm-hmm. or I mean mm-hmm. all that stuff so it could it could be more of of a of a way of doing it that was more equitable. But it's never going to be just voting also my professor in college years ago said you know if you do these like these countries like italy or whatever where you have 20 20 different um parties and you just elect somebody he says that's when the hitlers rise up he says because you got you everybody divides the votes in so many different places and that's what happened with trump this time the democrats in their in their you know when they go through their political system to pick a in, in the primaries it's it's done by percentages more or right, less. Right, right. So if Bernie Sanders gets 40% of the vote in California and Hillary gets 60, it's 60% 40% delegate splitting when they get to the convention. Republicans most states are winner take all. Right. So, you know, McCain gets 20 and Rubio gets 20, but but Trump gets 27 and he gets all the delegates. Yes. And if they had done it by by percentages like I'm talking about doing the electoral college, it would mean that Trump would have not been president or the candidate because those other guys would have gotten together and brokered their 20 and and. and uh, but he ended up with the most, all the delegates before they even got to the convention.
0: The states are allowed to split their electoral votes. Maine and Nebraska do. Yes. So states could do this. Yes. There's potential in that. But there's a current move that people are getting very excited about that says, <clears throat> you agree to vote for the national popular vote winner. And they've seen a bunch of states sign on to this, and everybody's very excited about that. You see, if everybody agreed to this, then we could change things. And the trouble (laughs) is, I I pointed out, look at the map of all the states that have agreed to this. Every single one is a blue state. It only works if the red states also sign on to this. So that's that's not an avenue to fix it.
1: It just is based on what I was taught in college, was that it wasn't a secure way of doing it in various world governments the way they have this kind of unbrokered thing going on there that, that just any, 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 any party can get deli- – so we have kind of a more stable way of doing it. But, you know, it, yes, it, it's not equal, and the electoral college is not good.
0: Well, and, I mean uh, Donald Trump is a candidate that could win in 2020. Because of the huge bias that is inherent in Electoral College. Yes. That were, if that were modified, we wouldn't be worrying about a lot of this.
1: Right. But if it was popular vote, how many candidates can going to be on the ballot? All the political parties? Well,
0: I don't know. Well, there's a quote that's kind of relevant of all this from Boss Tweed, who once said, I don't care who does the electing as long as I do the nominating. So part of it has to do with the fact that if the Republican, if we got a two-party system, and you get candidate A and candidate B— it's been pretty rare in our lifetime when there was a third guy that might spoil the party. George Wallace made a run at it. Ross Perot made a run at it, but but it's hard to think of any any others in the recent because of the
1: electoral college. Yes. But if there's no electoral college, Bernie can just run as Bernie.
0: Well, Mark Madley, it's been a great pleasure having my having you on here as my high school teacher, and I hope you will uh, return sometime before long.
1: Well, thank you very much for inviting me. It was a pleasure to be here, uh, and I I really love this program the way you do it.
0: program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week.